when I got beat by 13-year-old Chilean kids, I was like, okay, I thought I was pretty good, but there is no way. There is no way I made like you you are so overshadowed by someone else's like extreme capability that you're like there's no way I will make it. And that was super humbling. That goes to you know the ex- excellence comment of I can play as hard as I can play, but my physical like I'm done. Like I am not as good. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence podcast. This show is for current and aspiring leaders that are dedicated to showing up every day in their lives with excellence. We break down the careers of those excelling so you can understand what is out there and how to rise up in every field you choose. Let's get the show on the road, shall we? Your host has spent his life promoting global entrepreneurship, helping 20-somethings find their passion and working to help others achieve excellence. CEO of CollegeWorks, Matt Stewart. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for tuning in and telling your buddies about it. We've got another great show for you today. We've got Sharon Shravatsa, a tennis pro, an immigrant to the U.S., Vanderbilt University, Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, and now you're going to want to hear this, not retired, but a private investor, four times on the Inc. 500, 10x growth in five years, and he's got a wonderful podcast, the Business School Podcast. He's going to talk today about excellence being going 10% above what you promised. Think about that. 10% above what you promised, replicating your hero's support system, not your hero, gratitude, and your ability to rebound. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for making time from your super busy schedule of weekend worrying, playing tennis, and working 95 hours a week in your retirement. I really appreciate you coming on the Edge of Excellence. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize this stuff takes a, a lot of work to do. It's finding guests, producing the show, showing up every single time. So appreciate you having me and looking forward to looking forward to jamming. Oh, I thought you were talking about retirement takes a lot of time because I'm in a, I'm in a battle against A, Instagram, and B, impatience, Gen Z. And if you think about Gen Z right now, they've got Instagram photos of their Everybody else's significant other's better looking. Everybody's food's better. Everybody's day's better. Everybody's vacation's better. And there's this impatience of, I got to get my life done. I got to be Sharon by the time I'm 25. So I like having people on that have done a lot of big things in their life and are still going because that's your future. If you're listening right now, you're not done at 35. Be patient. You got a lot of time. Well, Sharon, we're going to dive right into this. I'm going to start. I'm going to start you off with my favorite first question. What is your definition of excellence? You know, a lot of people can define a lot of ways, but I think the uh, the definition of excellence for me is that 10% that you do after you do what you promise to do. That 10% that you do after you do what you promise to do. So uh, Michael Jordan shows up and he promised to take, promised three hours of practice, but he, when everyone else is done in the locker rooms, he's got a hundred more shots. The Picasso paints the picture that's amazing. It looks fantastic. It's good enough but he still looks at it and tweaks it a little bit more. That copywriter writes an amazing ad and then it's good enough. It's right to ship. It'll work great, but he still waits because that extra 10% past what you have promised is the work of art. And it doesn't matter if it's your you know, God-given calling. It doesn't matter if it's your true talents. 
at the end of the day, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And if you can't do that one thing 10% better than what you originally promised, hey man, then 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 we're 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 not we're not over delivering. So maybe that's my definition of excellence. Well, that's interesting because people that aren't excellent, people that are typical, we could say, oftentimes come in 10% below what they promised. Of course. I'm in the contracting industry and the and the, you know the, it's easy to compete because all you got to do is do what you say. But most people come in 10% below. They get the job 90% done. They're 90% on time. And so to do it 100% makes you good. But when you go 10% beyond what you promise, um, you become excellent. And you tie in, and you're right, everybody I've ta- asked that question to has a different definition. So that is different than anybody's I've heard. But when you tie it into how you do one thing is how you do everything, that ties in some of the other definitions because it's not about just being excellent in one area. It's something that just becomes and you start spinning all the different plates and you become excellent in many areas because how you do one thing is how you do everything. Yeah, you got it. And I was just, I just did a Zoom call with some college works people yesterday and I did my Instagram tirade because I'm so sensitive to people calling me up saying, I suck, Matt. I'm like, no, you don't. You're crushing it. But if you take everyone's individual Instagram pieces from the thousand people you're following and compare it to your day, yeah, that's going to be a little rough. And they're in the process of, you know, launching these businesses and they got to hire people and set the customers up and get everything. I said, look, you know, this is hard right now. You're going to be spinning four or five plates, but you get used to it. And soon you'll be spinning 10 plates. And because you started with four or five, you can do 10. And if you spin one of them excellently, you'll start spinning them all excellent. Well, I think that's a fantastic definition. And Sharon, we're going to get into your history and you've got an interesting history. So before you had, is, is it Shrillo? Yep. Shrillo Ventures, which is private investing, which is AKA retirement. Before <laughs> you, which, which if you're listening right now and you want to retire by the time you're 35, turn off your Instagram you need to keep going. So this is a typical retirement candidate, right? Or retirement example. Before you had that company and before you had all the companies that you invested in with, uh, I believe it's one main partner that you have or do you have multiple partners? That's right, just one, just yeah, one partner. You, you and this one partner went through all these different businesses and bought these companies and turned them around or maybe they didn't need to be turned around. But I know like TELUS, where I, I met you when you were at TELUS, I think it grew 10X in five years or something crazy like yeah. that. So that's your history. But before that, you were a Goldman kid and a Credit Swiss kid and a Ritz and Four Seasons guy and my fourth Vanderbilt guest. But what's very interesting about you, and I've had a couple pro athletes on. In fact, this week's episode is a pro athlete. You were a tennis pro. Yep. So let's start with that. Um, where'd you go to high school? Yeah. So the, the tennis is an interesting story. So I was born in India and tennis just happened because I was in bad company. And as a 10-year-old... I remember this conversation with my dad and we were sitting on a park bench and he was telling me I should keep good company. And the, his way of telling me to keep good company was we were sitting in front of two tennis courts and he's like, hey, I think you should play that sport instead. And I said, why? He goes, well, you're 78 feet away from the other person. I was like, that's crazy that you think that. And so his his idea of getting me out of that and, and I didn't realize the entire thought process, his thought process was, he re- he thought that you know something was going on with me, and it was. I I was um, I am dyslexic. I am tone deaf. I am uh, I have ADHD, and in India they don't like to diagnose all those things. In fact, it was so bad, Matt, that in 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 high school, just in, in middle school, 
what was happening was I was getting bullied and it took me a lot of therapy to be able to talk about it, but I was getting bullied to the point where I would get beaten in the lockers almost every day. And I remember going to class where instead of just walking across the hall to class, I would get out of the building, run all the way around the school to go to the classroom on the other side, just so I wouldn't pass the lockers in the middle to get beaten. And, and my parents knew that something was up. And so I think what they wanted was they wanted me to build, do something individually, maybe create an individual sport. And my dad was really fixated on his entire thing was he'd never left India. His entire thing was I got to give this guy some capability, some skill, because clearly he got kicked out of art class because he, he's colorblind. He got kicked out of, you know, you know, music because he's tone deaf. He can't do math. He can't do science because he can't read and he's dyslexic. I got to give him another skill. And I think it was my parents' way of like getting me into tennis to be like, hey, this is your skill. This is your passport to trying to do something that, you know, the educational system doesn't lock you down in. And that's when I kind of started down this path where my my parents committed me to doing to, to learning tennis so that it would be like the secondary quote passport if I could do something else with my life. I love listening to people talk about their self-perception. You know, you go back to high school and everybody thinks they're a loser and everybody thinks they're not popular. And I get that you got beaten up every day. That's a whole different story. But I got to throw a yellow flag on uh, sucked at art, sucked at math, sucked at reading, sucked at this, because you don't get into Vanderbilt if you suck at all those things. Yeah, well, I think that's so. So that's a good it's a good transition. I'll tell you I'll tell you an interesting story. Right. So my, my parents realized this. And I think the coming to America story is an important one because a lot of people say these words, hey, if I can do it, you can do it, too. Right. And I, I think that's not true. That's not true at all, because we are all born, like you said, with the gifts that we're given. And I don't believe that if I can do it, anyone can do it because it's very hard to replicate the skills and talents and the timing that I had. Similar to you, it's very hard to replicate the skills and talents and capabilities and timing that you had. But what I do believe is that instead of saying, if I can do it, you can do it too. For me, it is all about saying, looking back, it's saying, all right, I want to be like Jordan. I want to be like Tiger. I want to be like Trump. I want to be like Matt. That's cool. It's not, I want to be like Matt. How can I, instead of replicating what they do, can I replicate their support system? If you just replicated that person's support system, you instantly uh, get a chance to be your own, which I think is a cool thing. And so my parents, uh, God bless them, they, my parents sold, they were not, were not very well off. My parents sold, Matt, they sold everything that they had. They sold every single thing that they had to send me to the U.S. I got one check, one check for a full year of school. So a lot of people just show up in the States and they had nothing. I got one year paid for. And my dad, I remember my dad told me this. He goes, here's a check. Uh, room, board, laundry, everything paid for for a full year. You have a year's head start. If you can make this work, you can stay and finish it up. If you can't, come back and we'll take care of you. My dad, my, my dad actually sold, you know this, you've been in India multiple times. My dad sold his scooter to buy me a plane ticket. And the support system was super powerful for me. And, and getting here, I, I got here and I was not like, I was not struggling the first day, but I knew that I had a year to make it work. And my entire year was trying to figure out what was I good at? How can I excel so that I can stay here for more years? And that was the kind of, that was the big part for me. Wow. And so what did you do to pay your bills while you, for that? Uh, and, I, and I know schools have gone way up 600% in one decade, but it still is a very prestigious, awesome campus, beautiful location, expensive private school. What'd you do for the next three years to pay for school? 
Yeah. So, so um, from a timing perspective, there's so there the to get the facts right. Um, I went I went undergrad to a small school in Iowa called Luther College, and I went to graduate school in Vanderbilt. So, so my my first foray was going to go to school in Iowa. Uh, my first year on campus, I got I had everything paid for, and here's a funny story, and and, and people will laugh. This was. Most kids right now, you know, like Wi-Fi and Internet is normal. You and I were born in the age where we wrote stuff with pens and pencils and we didn't have Wi-Fi. And so if if, so, if you can picture my dorm room, which is you walk in, there's a bed, there's a closet and a desk on the right. There's a bed, a closet and a desk on the left. And there's a little mini space in between. Like it was a two person room and they were just putting in Internet cables. And there's this is how I made the money. They put this Internet box by the door, but the desk was by the window. So there was 18 feet between the door, between the box and the window. And we were in a remote college campus in, in Iowa. And I was like, how am I going to get this Ethernet cable from the door to my desktop? We didn't have laptops or anything. So I needed this 18-foot cable. So me and my roommate drove to, to the Mega Mall, which is the Mall of America in Minneapolis. And we we're like, let's buy 18-foot cables each. And then I, my roommate said, Dude, everyone is going to have this problem. There are 4,000 people on, on campus. So, Matt, we maxed out my fr- my roommate's parents' credit card, and we bought as many, <laughs> as many feet of Ethernet cable. And we our entire dorm room, we started cutting 18-foot cables, clipping them up, and we sold 18-foot cables out of our dorm room for like a, you know, 600% margin. I can't remember the exact numbers. But that, that just got us cash. Like, I made, I, th- I think we made like, $31,000 in cash in like three weeks because we sold 4,000 Ethernet cables all on financing from my roommate's parents' credit cards. <laughs> uh, Jake Stewart, if you're listening to this right now, I just want to tell you I love you. <laughs> I know you've never used my credit card and taken money from other people. I hope that your friend was as honest as my kids because, you know, some kids use their parents' credit card and they keep all the money. I hope he paid his parents back. Yeah, he he totally he totally did because whatever we borrowed, we had cash for, so it was it was great. I'll tell you I'll tell you this one this one last story. Uh, we'll go back to your flow. A lot of people think that you know when I when I first showed up, this I I, I had this one check that my parents gave me, which paid for all of school. So I show up on campus, I go to financial services, I hand them proudly this one check. I'm like, hey, I'm Sharon. I hand them this one check, and she's like, welcome to campus. This is great. She hands me my dorm room keys, and she says, hey, since this is an international check. It's going to take 10 to 14 days to clear. I said, no problem. She goes, everything works except your meal plan. Uh. (laughs) I'm like, okay. So I have a dorm room, but no money. So I I had like a hundred bucks in my wallet and it's fine. And and that carries you that long, but I had 14 days. So Matt, I hit every rush party. I hit every pizza party. (laughs) I hit like, I mean, I went to, I, I, I went to campus singing. I went to chess club. I went to all of those, but here's what happened one day. So it was a weekend. Parties were over, like these these rush parties were over, and I was walking. I hadn't eaten for a day, day and a half, something like that. And yeah, I was waiting for my check to clear. And I, there was a moment of weakness. It was later in the evening, and I saw two guys throw a pizza box into a dumpster. And I had not eaten for a day, so I was like, what is the worst that can happen? They just threw the pizza box in the dumpster. There's no one looking. I'm just going to wait till it gets a little darker. So I jump in the dumpster. An eight by eight dumpster, I'm telling you, like, you never want to do that. I jumped in the dumpster. I grabbed the pizza box. I was so embarrassed. I put my hoodie on and there were like two slices of whatever. I remember there's jalapenos in one and I just run to my dorm room. 
I had two slices of pizza, crusty old pizza. It was fine. And I was so thankful. I was like, this day can't come fast enough. Well, the next day, something similar happened. And it took me, I have never had a chance to tell my parents this. They actually heard it on a podcast when I shared it for the first time, where the next day, same exact thing happened. And I saw a bunch of people after a party throw a party sub into the dumpster. They threw literally a party sub. And I was like, well, this is a bonanza. Yeah. Two days, two days of food. I, I wait till it gets darker. I jump in the dumpster. I grab this uh, this little empty sub the subway bag, and I see an all American box of pop tarts. There is there is this street light streaming right inside this dumpster, and I see these pop tarts. I'm like, this is amazing. So I grab the bag of pop tarts, and I grab this the, the, the subway sandwich, and I see two beady eyes looking at me. A raccoon. There was a raccoon in the dumpster, and I had no idea. Yeah, right? Mean. And, and raccoons are mean critters. Super mean, and and out of nowhere, Matt. I get slapped in the face. Like I get slapped there and I'm bleeding. Yeah. You got clawed in the face. I got clawed in the face. I fight or flight kicks in. I kick the raccoon with my foot. I jump out of the dumpster and I just, I'm running as fast as possible, not knowing where to go. I run, I run for like two, 300 yards. I sit down on a park bench and I'm just crying, yeah. not knowing why. Should I get a tetanus shot first or should I eat first? I had no idea. And that's when I realized this one thing, which is, if this is as low as it can get, <laughs> I'll be not, okay. It's not I'll, as low as it can get. <laughs> I, if this, this is what I have seen. I'll be okay. And I could never have told my parents that it ever happened. So I kept that as what a soft, a soft secret for 11, 12 plus years since I first had therapy about it. And my, my therapist said this one amazing thing. She said, the day you can actually smile, laugh, and make it humorous about a story that was uh, you know, deeply impactful is the day you're ready to share it. And I thought that was a really, so even up until today, my parents have heard that, but it got, you know, they, for all the sacrifices they made, them knowing that their, their child had to dumpster dive is super hard for any parent. Right. And so, um, but I think it establishes a lower bound saying, so for whoever's listening, wherever you are in your life, things can get rough, but knowing that you can kind of rebound from that should give you insane confidence for the amount of capacity and risk you can take. And I think that the the lesson is knowing you can rebound because I've been very careful in my life to say it can't get any worse because I've said that a few times and it's gotten much worse. And I funny that you, you tell that story. Well, it's not a funny story. First of all, I went to school in Santa Barbara. I'm from New Mexico, New Mexico. We don't have any raccoons in Santa Barbara. We do. And I can't tell you how many times those vi- raccoons, geese and camels. Those three animals, I've been attacked and beat up by those three. I've never had the raccoon get to me, though, because they're vicious. They've got long claws. They're mean. Yeah, they're terrible. But uh, um, there's so many people that you and I know that grew up um, struggling, and I'm one of them. Um, And, you know, my parents were lower middle class, and, you know, your parents were probably lower middle class in India. My parents had to really sacrificed to send me to college. Your parents had to sacrifice more. But I remember as a kid um, eating horrible food, like we would eat liver. And I finally asked my mom, why did you serve that to us? And she said, because it was every week, she said, we couldn't afford protein. That was protein. And my brother remembers sitting at the table with me and my brother eating and my parents not eating. And I don't remember that. Uh, and, and I know we were on food stamps, but when I tell the story, like if my mom listens to this podcast, she's going to call me up. She's like, that you can't tell that story. Yeah. I don't remember it that way. I don't know if she's blocked it out of her mind <laughs> or what the deal is. Um, but there's so many people that you and I know 
<laughs> most most aren't this way that you and I know, but so many people that have had this rough upbringing and it fuels them and it drives them and they're running away. And, and I'm not running away from that because my parents are so loving. Your parents are so loving. I'm actually running to yeah. what they did as parents, but running away from that economic situation. And then the people that aren't, there's so much counseling to make sure you don't end up with spoiled kids. Because if you're suffering right now and you're listening right now, and maybe you're eating ramen noodles every meal like I did for a couple months, or maybe you're dumpster diving like Sharon did, or maybe you're living in your car and we know know a people, few people that have done that, it can't get worse. And you're in training right now for it getting worse, but you can rebound. Yeah. So you're in Ohio. That was Ohio or Iowa? Iowa. I don't understand why brown people end up in states like <laughs> Iowa and Alabama. You know, my buddy Sanjay Kapoor, who I, did you come to India with me? No, I did not. Okay. So when we went to India, everybody met him. He went to Birmingham, Alabama. Like, yes. what are you doing? Anyway, so you're in Iowa. How long were you there for? Uh, four, four years. I did, I did um, all four years of college in, in, in Iowa. And then oh, Vanderbilt was grad school. Vanderbilt was grad school. Exactly right. And uh, so you go, you go to school in Iowa and you had already been a tennis pro as a younger kid. Yeah. So I, uh, the reason I went to school in Iowa was I, um, we had a choice when I was 16. Um, I, we could either, I could either play college tennis in the U S or I could try my hand at going pro. And the interesting part there is if you go pro, you blow your amateur eligibility and so that was a choice we had to make. And, and my, we saw that if, if, if I had any shot of going pro and doing decently, it would, it would have to do with pre-college and not post-college because most kids post-college in the tennis world never made it on the, on the pro tour. So uh, I played the pro tour. And here's the crazy part, Matt. I thought it was pretty good. Played the pro tour. I was high 900s in the world, which means I got one ATP point, one. So I was, I, they only ranked till 1,000. I played a nine-tournament circuit in Southeast Asia. So you, it's every week and you go to for nine weeks as so you play a circuit. I lost first round in for nine straight weeks. And I thought I was so good. <laughs> and th- if there was a dose of humility, when I got beat by 13-year-old Chilean kids, I was like, okay, I thought I was pretty good, but there is no way. There is no way I'm made. Like you, you are so overshadowed by someone else's like extreme capability that you're like, there's no way I will make it. And that was super humbling. That goes to, you know, the ex- excellence comment of I can play as hard as I can play, but my physical, like I'm done. Like I am not as good. And it was really hard for a 16 year old at that time to realize, okay, this is, I tried it. I hit it. I gave my best, but I'm fundamentally never going to be a pro, a pro and that, but once you go pro, since you can't play college, you can, I look for a bunch of division three schools where you can still play tennis but not, you know, not get any athletic scholarships. Club here's tennis. a crazy, yeah. Here's a crazy part, Matt. Uh, tennis plays one, two, three, like they play six people on a team. Um, they, and as far as how good you are in my freshman year, I was high nine hundreds in the world and I was number six on the team. There were five kids better than me at division three, which is crazy. If you think about it. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with this podcast, it's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Matt and the rest of the team put together the Edge of Excellence Bundle. 
In it, you'll find different tools that relate to overarching themes and topics of the show. Things like disk assessment tools, time management strategies and tactics, stress and anxiety management tools, exclusive videos and episodes from this podcast that is not released anywhere else, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of this show, you can access the Edge of Excellence bundle 100% for free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get access, all you have to do is go to www.collegeworks.com podcast and fill out the short form there for us to get the bundle over to you. Once again, it's www.collegeworks.com podcast. Now, back to the show. Well, that's why I tell parents, Quit focusing on sports and, you know, down, down where you live in Elisa Viejo, it's like baseball town. And, and, you know, Greg Gensky, our yeah. buddy, that's uh, a, a big time sports agent. I, and I finally, cause I don't know anything about sports. And finally I said, Hey, Greg, how many people that are in Elisa? Cause they, they dedicate their whole lives to this. The kids can't work. The kids can't study sports, sports, sports. How many are going to go pro? Maybe one every three years. He said. So crazy. Like, so, so if you're listening to this, the mom and dad are saying, Hey, sunny boy, hey, beautiful daughter, you're too busy to work. They're wrong. Go get a job. Um, and it's you have an interesting life lesson in there, too. Um, and I hear this a lot from people that are in college. They were like you know, the cat's meow in high school, and then they go to college and they're one of many. I'm gonna challenge you. You are so good. You said I'm not that good. You are so good. You're top 900 in the world. You're great. If you're sitting in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you're number 10 ranked at Valley High School like I was, you're great. You're fantastic. But you're going to find out that the world's a big place and you might not be as high ranked as you thought you were, but you're still great. You may not be a professional tennis player. You may not be a rock star like I wanted to be or a famous archaeologist, um, <laughs> but you can find something else because you're doing the things. If you're at top 900 in tennis, that means you have a work ethic. That means you have commitment. That means you have drive. That means you can deal with rejection. You can deal with failure. All that stuff's preparing you to be great and whatever you're going to be great at. So you go to tennis pro, yeah. you go to the uh, welcoming state of Iowa. Yeah. Uh, so I was a computer. I realized pretty quickly that uh, we talk about school. My first class that I took was uh, I took a I took a basic computer science class because I think a lot of times what people do. My goal in first freshman year of college was just experiment, get as many classes that I can take in very in different subjects. I had this insane computer science professor, and I just fell in love. Like he rekindled this love for me. He's like, hey, I think you have what it takes. So I was a computer science. Even as even though I was dyslexic, et cetera, I was a computer science major. And here's what's the crazy thing that happened, Matt. I he reluctantly signed me up for a, a programming contest at, in Berkeley, California. And I was like, I don't want to go to Berkeley. I don't want to do anything. He's like, just go present the your senior paper that you wrote. So I had the senior paper that I wrote, which was I, I was not even smoking any weed. Like I I was I wrote the senior paper, <laughs> and I presented at this conference. And there were three judges. Out of those three judges, one guy comes up to me after I present and he's like, hey kid, good presentation. You're not gonna win. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I just funded a company that you would be a great fit for. You should talk to the founders. That judge from 22-ish years ago is my partner today. Oh, really? 
Yeah. So he was, he was the, so he had invested in a company and he thought the, the technology that I presented or the theoretical concept of what I had written would be a great fit. So I joined, that was, so I joined this startup during this technology boom. I joined the startup and they implemented the stuff that I wrote. And the interesting part was I was not a founder, but I was one of the very early, I was like employee number seven. That company grew. We raised, I I never raised money. We raised tens of millions of dollars and we got acquired by a public company called Sienna for 550 million. The founders did really well, but I got my slug and the slug that I got allowed me to take five years where I could travel the world, teach tennis, pay off my grandma's house and all of that. And I knew that I'd have five years where I could actually do something different. And that was the, I didn't have the courage to do that, but my mentor said, Hey, you just made decent amount of change. Nobody in their twenties will get a chance to go do like, he's like, get all that stuff out of your system. And doing that was really good. And then once I did the five years and my money ran out, I was like, what do I do next? He goes, well, no one's going to hire a tennis pro. That, that was the transition of, well, if no one's going to hire a tennis pro, that it's a really good story to say, I had a computer science degree. We built a business. We sold it. I taught tennis and I went to business school. But the very idea of going to business school was to go work at, on, on Wall Street because I, I was missing that, I, that deal structuring experience. Dude, he will not believe this. Two-star, funny part of choosing college. I said I didn't want to be anywhere cold. Uh, so all the no- every, everything north of the Mason-Dixon line was just not available. Uh, California was too expensive. So I was like, I, I set up the Southern tour. It was, Van- it was Vanderbilt. UNC, Duke, and Virginia. And I was like, let me do that first. I'll do Texas second. I show up at, I show up at Vanderbilt. I had a great experience. I canceled the rest of my trip. And, All your eggs in one basket. Yeah, I just, and, and the, that, was a, that was a big shift because I was like, okay, I'm here. I'm good to go. And because I found that there was a ton of alumni from Vanderbilt alone that had gone to Wall Street. And I realized that the everyone had told me the only way to get to Wall Street is to get people inside of these big investment banks to support your case to HR in that hiring process because they only hire from their feeder schools. And whether that's a racket or not, I don't care. I, I, I really wanted to slot in. And I was like, OK, if I know, I again, going back to the support system, if I know I can have a built-in support system to at least call somebody and say, hey, Matt, I'm at Vanderbilt doing my MBA. I want to do this. Do you have 15 minutes for a call? I did a lot that without that support system of networking of alumni, I would have never made it on Wall Street. All right. We got to stop again. Got to call out these lessons. So first of all, there's the lesson of serendipity. And I remember as a kid, I was going to England. My, my, my mom's from England. I'm going there to visit my grandparents. I thought because I was such a good kid, I found out on my 40th birthday, it was because I was such a bad kid. And, my, and I couldn't understand because my parents had no money why I kept going to England while my grandparents were paying. <laughs> and before they were rescuing my me from my parents because they thought my parents were going to kill me. So uh, my dad says as I'm leaving, he says, "Pay attention to your grandfather. He's really good at, rela- at building relationships." And I was into cars, so he would drive me around to all his friends that had these fancy cars, and they'd take me for spins. And the Jaguar dealership gave him a Jaguar, and the j- guy that owned the dealership drove me around in his D-type, and I'm 12 years old driving these cars, and I watched my grandfather maintain relationships. And you think about this guy that was the judge. And if you're listening right now, there's a judge in your life. There's a grandfather in your life. There's someone that's done something nice to you or for you. Um, What are you doing to maintain that relationship? Because however many years ago that contest was, something happened with Sharon 
where he maintained relationship with that guy. So he would later fund the purchase of over five companies you bought with them and big dollars, big dollars you guys spent and you had big exits. And uh, there's that relationship management. And then the other thing is building a strategic support structure. I, I tell people, you know, sometimes you got to fire friends. Are they lifting you up or dragging you down? So you actually strategically went to Vanderbilt and there's plenty of schools. They're all going to be in the top 20 um, that Goldman Sachs hires out of. But where are you getting your support from? It was the Aristotle quote. You are the sum of your five closest friends. Yep. Better than that, though. You, you yeah. probably know the exact quote. Yeah. So you, you got two lessons there. Real quick, though, what did you do to maintain the relationship with that guy that became your business partner that was just a random judge at a random contest that said a random sentence to you? Yeah. So the, the, the piece of advice that I got from my dad, but, but when I left India was this one thing, he said, if anyone ever helps you just, we only do two, we do two things. Number one, we are deeply appreciative and express the gratitude for their, for their help. That's number one. But number two, he says, when someone helps you turn around and when you actually implement their advice, go back to them and tell them what you did, because they just now, they now feel honored that the time that they spent with you was productive, was useful, was valuable. And they should now, you're, you're giving them permission and the purpose to spend more time with you. A lot of times we get advice from somebody that says, hey, go do blank. We may even go do blank, but we never tell them that we did blank. And so what even uh, all I, even now, if someone gives me a piece of advice, I know there's two, there's two things. Number one, I need to show some form of gratitude or appreciation because even if they're doing it because they see some of themselves in me, that's why a lot of people get help because Matt, you help me because you're like, I see, I see a little bit of myself in Sharon, so I'm going to support him because you, you see that number one is a gratitude. And that may be just saying, thank you. That may be writing a letter. That may be a, a note that may be sending them a gift. That may be sending their children a gift, some way of showing gratitude. But the second is when you actually implement their advice, go back and tell them what you did because now it's like, hey, Matt, you told me to read three books and come. I, I remember when I first talked to you, Matt, you said, hey, great speakers sit down and come up with 10 stories and then they figure out how to slot their 10 stories into all their life experiences, right? And now if I, if I, if I, you and I are talking, you can tell, you can tell that I took your advice to heart. I built the stories out. I actually thought through them. And now I know how to slot them in various places. So if I don't come back to you and say, hey, Matt, here is, let me show you an artifact. Here, I wrote down all the stories. I wrote down all the hooks. I wrote down the lessons. I, these are 10 of them. What should I do next? Now you're like, dude, whatever I told this guy, he went and did. Like, let me help this guy next. So just that alone, I think it, it, it endears people to saying, I want to invest more in this person because they actually took and implemented the advice. And they came back and told me to close the loop. All right, so show gratitude and tell them what they did. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of this young woman, Ariana. I used to do these high school internships at my son's high school, which meant I called all my buddies and they did internships. And so there's this, this woman named Ariana who, you know, she's at Sage Hill and everybody there is completely billionaire. The poorest person there is a hundred millionaire. And uh, she, she was on a scholarship and she took it so seriously. And she went to, you know, Darren Anderson, me, Mike Cato, I forget who the other two were. Every Christmas around the month of December, we get a letter updating us on how she's doing and thanking us for what she did. So then I get a letter saying, hey, you know, I'm going out to look for an internship. She now goes to Berkeley. She went yeah. to community college, transferred to Berkeley. Um, she's going to be an engineer. Where could I look? I go, why don't you call Darren Anderson? 
He's got 1500 engineers in his business. Why don't you, why don't you do that? And the, the act of, and we taught Nicole McMacken, the act of her sending us that letter co- creates a conversation amongst all of us on how awesome she is and what more can we do for her? So that's a great lesson in relationship management. I want to get back and I, I am saving one for you because uh, <laughs> there's one thing that you said, I'm also going to throw a flag on, but you, you do, <clears throat> you're in India. And, you know, those, those of you that haven't been to India, um, India used to have probably, I don't know, 985 million people in poverty and 15 million people that are as wealthy as can be. It's changed. So where some of the world, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. In China and India, you have this developing middle class. And I believe now it's up to 300 million people that are in the middle class. So what wonderful to see that. But your family was probably you know, not, not compared to American standards, not crushing it. You go to, you go to college in Iowa, you do the tennis pro thing. You go to college in Iowa, you do the Vanderbilt thing. You go to Goldman Sachs for three years, get that pedigree. You go to credit Swiss for three years, get that pedigree, come back around to this partner. You start buying companies, Obopay, Telus, Shrilo Ventures, all these different businesses, four times Inc 500. And today, today you are, I know you've got your podcast. Oh, by the way, if you want to reach Sharon, um, you can reach him. You can, you can check out his podcast. It's called Business School. He's got this thing called the 5 a.m. club that me and my friends sign each other up for as a joke. Or you can reach him on a cell phone at 808 <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you, you got that one early. So uh, you, you did all this stuff. As you were doing it, and probably you did, did you know to separate yourself or was it just happening? What do you mean by that? Did you know to aim for excellence? Did you know, like when you started playing tennis, were you really driven to be the best or was it just happening? When you were in Iowa, you must have gotten great grades um, or else you wouldn't have the transcript to get to Vanderbilt. Did you know that you had to push it? Did you know you had to join that Berkeley contest? How, how did you, if you did know, how did you know? If you didn't know, what else was going on? I, I, I didn't, I had no, I had no idea. I had no idea. And you may call a flag on it, but I think a lot of the early part of it is just a lot of instinct, right? You, you just, you, I, here's, here's what I knew. I knew that I wanted to, there's, there's one great thing. If everybody can, can have this one thing written down, or we should always aim for a bigger and better future, right? Everything is centered around just that one thing, which is how can tomorrow be better than today? Uh, my coach asked me this question often, which allows me to think about this. She says, imagine you had the day today. Look back at your calendar about today. Just look at your calendar. And if you did, the, if you had the same day like you had today for the next thousand days, would it give you a bigger and better future? And it forces me to think about just that one thing, which is what would I need to change in my average day? Thereby, if I actually had to repeat that same day 1,000 times, it would give me a bigger and better future. So uh, that also forces the small upgrades, right? And uh, so I'll I'll give you my three biggest learnings around this because I spent a lot of time just thinking and writing. My three biggest learnings are, and they sit on, people can't see, they sit on a little note card on my desk. uh, And it's not something I carry around, but it's a note card on my desk, which is there's three things I always come back to, which is number one is singularity of focus. Hey, if I 
it's easy to get distracted on a lot of things, but right now I'm focused on this one thing. Right now we're investors. If we don't, if we don't put money to work, we don't make money. So we're investors. Before it was like, hey, we're running this company and we have to grow it to X number. This is singularity of focus. Because what it I think what it does is it serves as a diagnostic to tell you what not to do. That's my, my favorite thing. The second is the cadence of accountability. Um that goes back to the support system of a lot of times it's not that I pay somebody to keep me accountable. It's that, man, Matt and I are partners. I promised Matt that I was going to get these six things done. If I don't, I'm letting Matt down. And so what is the accountability that's built into our schedules that knows? Maybe a trainer that comes to you. Maybe your 75 heart app that you report to. Maybe you take a progress picture every day. There's got to be some accountability in our lives for no other reason than to keep us going the right way. That's number two cadence of accountability. And the last part is just, you know, this is the excellence question that you ask. Good process drives good results. And when, when we all know that we're hacking something, we all know that we're hacking our diet. We all know that we're hacking our workouts. We all know that we're hacking our emails and we don't have inbox zero, whatever it may be. If there's something in our life that we want to upgrade, there's probably need to be a good process for that. And so a lot of times the way I get good process is that I just hire it out. So if I want to have better productivity, I literally will be like, how can I go find a productivity coach for an hour? I'll pay that person, whatever their one hour consulting, they can download to me their entire depth of experience in one hour, instead of me having to figure it out, watching 300 YouTube videos. I think that all this knowledge is so democratized, but it's not sequenced in the right order for us. So those three things, singularity of focus, cadence of accountability, and good process drives good results. And the singularity of focus leads you to delegating out what you're not best in the world at. Singularity of focus leads you to hiring other people to implement processes or to coach you. And it also goes along with your definition of excellence. You know, what do you need to change to make it better? 10% more more than promised. Integrity. You could call it integrity. Do what you say you're going to do when and how you say you're going to do it. But you throw that 10% in and next thing you know, you're crushing it. Um, So... Now, and you kind of alluded to it, now you're investing. And again, I, I talk to a lot of people in their 20s and they want to you know, retire by 35 and there's this Instagram pressure and Kardashian pressure. And now you've retired from tennis. You've retired from banking. You've retired from you know, business when you sold all these companies and you have this typical post-retired life of not being retired. So, I mean, what are you going to do if you sell your company? You're not going to travel around the world and be a tennis pro for the rest of your life because you want to settle down eventually. You're not going to play golf every day for the rest of your life because if you're listening to this right now and you're on the edge of excellence, it's who you are. You like to do 10% more. You like to deliver more. You like to impact the community. So now you're in this uh, realm of investing. So give us an idea of what the day in the life of someone that, runs a private investment company is. And, and, and it could be when you're actually in the business or it could be when you're not in the business yeah. that you purchased. Yeah, totally. Uh, so uh, I think the what, what, what a lot of uh, Instagram celebrities today need to understand is that good operators become good investors. And being an operator is super important. Like how you run something is super important. So if, if we're investing in something, I'm only as good as me understanding how to run that. I've just chosen because of circumstance that I'm not going to operate a business anymore day to day, but I'm a better investor or a better advisor or a better board member today because I was able to do that. A lot of people just want the 
the success, the fame, the capital, the, you know, kind of the, the money in the bank so that they can now become a VC. And I'm like, well, you're going to be a crappy VC if you don't know how to run a business. You're going to be a crappy VC if you don't know how to actually help an entrepreneur. So a lot of the times that folks from 19 to 39 right now are kind of working in that realm, the getting the reps of running a business or building a brand or generating leads or making being a mark specialization in marketing the the 10,000 hour rule the depth around that is super powerful that's what makes you that's what gives you the edge you know the domain expertise to do other things and so if Matt if I were to if you told me 10 years ago hey here is pick a number here's a hundred million dollars and you're an investor I would I would appreciate it but I would be a crappy investor because I did not have the ability to op- operate, see all these businesses, et cetera. So I think that good up op- first, good operators become good investors. So I think that's a that's a super interesting you know kind of distinction to make. And I didn't realize that, uh, but uh, that's number one. Number two is I will tell you I work more now than I ever worked before, but the work I do is a little different, and a lot of what I do is more in the hey can I can I advise and write a check. And I, I call it kind of like, you know, it's it's check equity, which is I write a check to get a result, or I give perspective equity, where I'm gonna tell people, hey, I've made this mistake before, you should not have stock options, you should do a phantom stock program, because it'll it'll break down, because I've seen it, and it I lost tens of millions of dollars that way. So a lot of my world right now is built around just two things. What are opportunities where I can put money behind so that I can fuel somebody or some business's growth? What are opportunities where I can put my perspective behind, where I can get them to get unstuck, get them released so that they can grow some way? So when I realized that the support system was the answer, now I want to be that support system. And so if you're not a good operator, you're not going to be a successful investor because you can't pick it. You'll end up being a day trader and maybe you could be a great day trader. You'll end up being a silent investor, but you're an active investor. You come in and you bring connections, you bring advice, you bring ideas of systems. You take a pretty big company sometimes, pretty successful company sometimes and do some tweaks and you're able to get on the Inc. 500. I don't remember if it's five or 10 times. You're able to grow TELUS 5X and... 10 years, sorry, 10X in five years because you implement things from being a great operator. So that's why I encourage people, have fun with what you do. Find your passion. You talk about singularity of focus. Figure out what you're good at. You mentioned marketing. You mentioned whatever it is. Get some experience in that so you can carry on another 100 years because we're all living a long time due to science. Uh, I'll tell you you one hook for people. I didn't realize this until I hired my recent coach. I hired a coach about a year ago and I showed him all the stuff that I had built. I'm like, hey, I have four terabytes of content. Like just that's that's over 4,000 hours of trainings, videos, things. I remember remember when he started it too. Dude, it's It's amazing how fast it's grown. There's so much. And, you know, he told me something which really changed everything for me. So if, if I knew this one thing, it would have completely accelerated all my success or all my learnings, if you will. And this one thing was, every time you create something, however small it may be, may it be a process, may it be a workflow, may it be a thought process on how to do something, may it be an SOP, may it be a checklist, name everything. So I'll give you a very simple example. So I, um, I, we have a really good email community. I bombard you with emails, but I write email three times a week. And I was like, you know, I should teach this. It works really well. 
It works really well. I write email three times a week. E- even though you and I don't get to chat with each other, I'm in your inbox often, which is awesome. And it feels like, so when I see you, uh, you know, at dinner one day, I'm like, hey, it feels like I already, you know, that there's no time passed. So five, 10 years ago, I never called it anything, but then now I found a way to name everything. So now I call that the email sprinkler system. So just putting a little brand around this little IP, if you call it. So everything in my world is named something. So how I do social media is called Social Media Rapid Engagement Playbook. So now I'm able to take that and teach it to somebody because I've created it in some playbook-based form. What it did for me, it gamified me doing my day-to-day work. So it was not just, a, oh my gosh, I got to come in and build a SOP or a checklist. I'm like, oh, I'm coming in and I'm building some IP, building a product. Everything that I do now, I try to build it in such a way that I can hand it to one of our portfolio companies. I can hand it to an, uh, to somebody to implement. And that doing that, uh, Jim Quick has this great thing that he says, when you teach something, you get to learn it twice. Yeah. When you teach something, you get to learn it twice. And so the the, the big shift for me was every day, every day, whatever I build, whatever I do, I try to wrap it with a name or a brand or a package, I try to package the IP. And it can, it can, it sounds rudimentary, but it's not because what it does is it goes back to your original definition of excellence because the packaging is the promise. And then you look at it and say, how can I make this a little better? And that's where the cool stuff starts to happen. And you're hacking your motivation, right? It's not coming in writing emails. It's, it's developing the sprinkler system that's going to go to five more companies and other people are going to use. Um, so I got one more thing that uh, I got to throw a flag on. Somebody told you, the coach, your mom said, go out and get it out of your system. So you went out and did the partying and tennis proing and all that. Um, but it never gets out of your system. So if you're listening right now, you don't have to get it out of your system. You can continue forever. And I don't know if you know this story, but you did a podcast on, and I don't know if it was the business school podcast. Did you used to have a different podcast? No. Yeah, okay. So yeah. one of your episodes of the business school podcast, and I've been looking for it, but there's the show notes aren't there for me to, to find it. But you did a discussion of when we went to Panama and, you know, we do some really fantastic yeah. trips and I was in charge of Panama and we had five countries in five days and uh, we didn't tell people what we were doing in Panama. And I was so excited because I hired two helicopters and Sean Baldwin helped, of course, even though I was in charge of Panama, he had his little fingers and everything. And we got him to take the doors off and we just told people, hey, don't wear any clothes, just wear a swimsuit, don't bring anything, no cameras. We're getting on these helicopters. We're going to tour Panama. And I don't know how we figured out that you didn't know how to swim. And the plan was it's an hour and 15 minutes from one end of Panama to the other, uh, Atlantic to Pacific or vice versa. You turn around, come back. And we lowered the helicopters. And thank God I waited till the pilot told me to jump out because I would have jumped out at 300 feet. You don't really know how low you are when you're coming down. And you, you're sitting there and you jump out of a helicopter from 20 feet in the air with a life vest on, which you're lucky your head didn't pop off because you didn't know how to swim because we were going to go surfing in the Panama Canal. And I wanted to tell that story for two reasons. One, you never get it out of your system. So I'm contradicting your earlier point. And two, you told that story on your podcast and you mentioned the name Sean Baldwin. <laughs> and he got, he got a little upset. He's like, you know, I don't like when people name drop. 65 episodes I've mentioned the name Sean Baldwin. (laughs) So if you're listening right now, kids, that's why I talk about, and he listens with his kids. That's why I talk about your dad every time, just to rub salt in the wounds. I got one last question for you. I know we got to go. We're out of time. Looking back at your life, there's 
plenty of sacrifices. Is there one or is there one that you remember that you thought was a big sacrifice at the time? And you look back and you said, I would do it. If I had to do it that day over a thousand times, I'd make the same sacrifice to change who I am. Yeah, I, I had invested decent amounts of money from time to time, but we had invested in this company, Talos. At that point, we realized we were passive investors and we realized that the original founder, original CEO was embezzling. And so my partner and I were, we were, we were investors. We had to do something about it. And the only thing that we could do was replace the CEO, but the CEO was not going to walk because he had ownership. My partner was significantly wealthier than I am. And I didn't have the liquidity to buy out 51% of the company. I begged and borrowed from friends and family uh, without telling my wife, I reverse mortgaged my house Ooh. and bought in and bought out the CEO, which then gave us skin in the game to own and operate this business, which we grew 10x in five years. I was so scared that I was going to lose my home, my family, my kids, all of that. But looking back, I would do that, that one thing over and over again, because it was not that it was calculated, but I kind of followed my gut and had good partners and a good support system around. So without that support system, I probably would not have been able to take that risk. Yeah, if, you, if you've led a life of practice and learning and you led a life of delivering 10% more than you promised and you led a life of building a support system, you can feel more confident in making sacrifices like that. And I'll, I'll amend it for you. If you did it again, you would definitely talk to your wife before you reverse mortgage the house. Um, I know you would definitely do that. Uh, well, Sharon, I really appreciate you making time from your super busy day. You look fantastic as always in your tennis pro shirt. I'm looking forward to seeing you walk across the street at lunch, by the way, not dinner. And we got to go out. We said last time we saw each other, we we're going to go out and take the spouses out and have a good time. Thank you for coming on the Edge of Excellence. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Edge of Excellence podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this exact episode with them. This show exists to showcase what is possible when young leaders are willing to step out of their comfort zone and choose to excel in their lives. To learn more about our internship for young and ambitious students, www.oneinternship.com slash podcast to see if it's something that makes sense for you. Once again, it is www.oneinternship.com slash podcast. Let this be a reminder for you to live on the edge of excellence in your business and life. See you next time.